This morning I have the privilege of introducing my friend and our speaker, Taylor Smith, who will be closing out our series of Believe. Taylor. Morning, everyone. Thank you. It's, you know, I can never get that out of the classes that I teach. Something about, um, if we can get the, the house lights up, that would be great. You all are these delightfully murky faces to me right now, and it's so much more fun. Wonderful. Now I can see you. Uh, you know, I can never get a good morning out of the classes that I teach up on campus. I don't know what it is. I think we need to cover that in, like, the introductory training of, you know, it's a call and response moment when, when the... Uh, professor says good morning. The appropriate response is, you know, good morning. But you all have that. Well done. Uh, I'm excited. This is the first time I get to preach with this table. Uh, everybody else on our team that we've had going for this series has gotten to enjoy it. I like it a lot. There's room for everything. My, my notes and my hot water that looks like coffee but isn't, so I don't get all jittery up here. Uh, people of Pullman Foursquare, how are we doing this morning? Are we Good. I'm glad to hear it. You know, it it is a strange time to be in a town like, like Pullman. When, when all of the students leave, it's, it's a bittersweet thing because you know it, there are people who we love, who, who for a season are, are no longer with us. We don't get to worship with them. Yet at the same time, I live around a bunch of undergrads, and there's no one there to, to party and keep me and my baby up. Uh, so for me, it's a pretty joyous occasion. I'm not going to lie. I'm a big fan of these next few weeks. Uh, but... What I'm really a big fan of is this series that we have been going through, this series that we've been calling Believe, this, this study that we have done for 12 weeks now on, on the Apostles' Creed, and, and we're closing it up today. I, I have the, the privilege and uh, responsibility in some ways, however much I want to invest that weight on myself, uh, to, to close this series. And I'm not sad that this series is ending, but only because of how excited I am for what we're going to be going through next as, as a church family. And I'm not going to spoil that. I'm sure we're going to talk about it soon. So I'm going to kind of let that hype hang in the air for a while uh, and, and look forward to what we're going through next. I have loved this series. I have loved what we've learned from it. I've been blessed to be a part of bringing it to our community. And I am equally, if not more, excited for what we're going to be going through next. But as we are closing our series, we need to remember that it's not closed yet. This week is not just, you know, kind of the conclusion to the five-paragraph essay of, here's what I just wrote. I really enjoyed giving this sermon series. I hope you really enjoyed listening to it. You know, that's not what we're going for here. We still have some very, very important material to cover today. Today, we are going to be talking about the closing stanza of the Apostles' Creed, which declares that we, the people of God, believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of everlasting. And this topic matters. It matters a lot for a variety of reasons. First, it matters because people readily recognize this concept of, of eternal life, this life everlasting. It is one of the most obvious, the most recognizable doctrines of Christianity. I think you could have somebody who knows next to nothing about Jesus. They know nothing about the Holy Spirit. They couldn't tell you a thing about the Old Testament. But they know that those Christians think that someday they're going to live forever in heaven. Christians are about this eternal life stuff. Most people are very, very aware of this. So it matters for that reason. It's a touchstone for people who don't know anything else about God. They, they might know something about this. 
But at the same time, as much as it is widely recognized, I think this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of Christianity. And it's misunderstood by both Christians and people outside of the Christian faith. We get this whole idea of of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We, We mix it up, and this misunderstanding has serious consequences. The concept of eternal life, when it's deployed carelessly, has really, really dangerous repercussions, and it can really hurt people. So we need to pay very careful attention when we talk about it. Between the widely recognized status of this concept and the danger that comes from misunderstanding it, I think we have a really good reason to want to pay close attention to what Scripture teaches on this subject. So with that in mind, I I hope you're asking, so what does Scripture teach on the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Because after all, as we've said time and again over the course of this series, the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture. Remember, the creed is not scripture. It reflects the truth of scripture. And that's why we're studying, is to understand these basic concepts, the the most core things of what it means to be a person who follows Jesus, to be God's church in this world. Therefore, we should be asking, from which passages did the authors of the creed develop this concept of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Well, we're going to start in the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, as, as we're looking for these passages today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and pull that out. You're heading pretty far to the right in that Bible. Uh, you're looking for 1 Thessalonians. It's right before 2 Thessalonians. All the T books are grouped together there. So if you hit the Timothys and that sort of thing, you know that you're relatively close. Uh, so you're looking for 1 Thessalonians. Paul wrote this letter. It's a letter. Uh, with the intent of instructing a relatively young church, on on how they should live as followers of Christ. And we pick up in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, and we're in the midst of some explicit instruction that that Paul is giving on how to live a life that, that pleases God. We find these words, starting off in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And I'm just going to have kind of the a, a keynote of the section, if you will, behind me, a, a point that you can reflect on you don't have the scripture in front of you. This passage reads, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, those who have died. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, when I read this passage, I see where where the authors of the Apostles' Creed got their basis for, for this final stanza. 
We, we read in this passage that the dead in Christ will rise first, and other parts of Scripture affirm this concept. And here we see that, that there's a basis for this resurrection of the body, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, not just Jesus' resurrection, which the Apostles' Creed covers earlier and we've already addressed in this series, but ours as well, those who are faithful to God. As to this chunk of the stanza, the life everlasting, we see that Paul clearly tells the Thessalonians, we will be with the Lord forever. So we see where the authors of the creed are, are getting their ideas. We see that this is reflecting the truth of Scripture. But I, for one, am not satisfied. I'm more of a curious sort I like to know how things work. I wonder about things. Somebody can explain something to me or, or you know, point out something, and, and it's nice, and I like to observe it, but I want to know how things are going to be. Sometimes this turns into a, I like plans. Does anybody else really like plans? I like to know kind of how stuff is going to turn out, and one of the quickest ways to freak me out is to take my plan and then derail it. So any opportunity that I have to kind of know how things are going to play out, I like to take advantage of that. So in this moment, I personally have a lot of curiosity. I could see, okay, there's going to be a bodily resurrection, and, and I'll be with the Lord forever, as, along with God's faithful people. I'm encouraged by that. But I'm kind of curious, what's this going to be like? Just what will it be like to be with the Lord forever? And in responding to this question is kind of where we're going to camp for the rest of our time today. And my hope today is that we would just allow ourselves to become increasingly in awe of just what it will be like to be with the Lord forever. We're going to spend some time unpacking that. And thankfully, as we try to unpack that, Scripture does not leave me hanging in my curiosity, and it also doesn't leave you hanging. When we're trying to understand how we will experience the eternal presence of God, just what it will be like to be with the Lord forever, our clearest glimpse comes from John's revelation of the kingdom of God, which is aptly contained in the book of Revelation. So, you know, that's convenient. This is fun. As you're turning to the book of Revelation, usually when I'm telling people where to find books, I say, you know, if you go all the way to the right and you find some stuff about dragons and trumpets and scrolls, you've gone too far. Today, you haven't. That's exactly where you need to be. You need to be in the book with the dragons and the trumpets and the scrolls and this sort of thing. And we're going to unpack some of that. So you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Revelation. Now, when we discuss John's Revelation, it's important that we start with this. We are talking about one of the most subtly complex and intricate portions of the entire Bible. To truly grasp what's going on in Revelation, we actually need to camp out a lot in the Old Testament, which I think is incredible. It blows my mind that the book of Revelation, at the tail end of the Bible, has so much consistency, draws so much from the meaning and power of the Old Testament. It demonstrates to me that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that there is a beautiful consistency that stretches across Scripture. That there's not some God over here in the New Testament, some God over here in the Old Testament, and I'm supposed to wrestle with what I'm supposed to make of that. Scripture shows us that there was a beautiful consistency across Scripture. But even though today we don't have time to dig into all of the ways in which the Old Testament reveals truths in Revelation, even the short time that we spend with this text today reveals vital truths about what it will be like 
to be with the Lord forever. We're just going to look at some snapshots today of John's revelation. And we are going to unpack what those snapshots mean for us as we consider this question of eternity. First off, we're going to start off in Revelation 4, starting off in verse 1 there. And and this comes just after John has heard some specific words, specific messages to churches in that time, to contemporary churches. He's going to say, after this I looked, and I want you to know what was just before this, what this is coming after. So Revelation 4, verse 1, John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. He can see into the throne room of God. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. We've got thrones on thrones. It's thrones all the way down. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night... They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, and remember, day and night they are proclaiming this praise, whenever that happens, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And one more brief glimpse from this revelation, Revelation 7, 9 through 10, which we've already talked about a bit in our series, but it bears repeating. After this I looked, And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I want to pause for a moment. I want to unpack the meaning of these What do these passages say about what it will be like to be with the Lord forever? Well, first, this is an experience of worship. Being in the presence of God is an experience of worship. Throughout the book of Revelation, people worship God. They do so freely, exuberantly, and they do it collectively. This is why I think the church is such a beautiful thing, because in our small gathering of people here, we are in some way mirroring what it is like to be in the eternal presence of God 
as we come and worship collectively. Worship is the proper response when confronted with the full presence of God. And I think that's because, in many ways, of the second point that we glean from these passages, from these snippets of John's revelation. And that second point is this. The presence of God is mind-blowing. It is beyond what we could ever hope to comprehend. God's presence extends beyond what we could ever hope to understand. The first passage that we read clarifies some of these things, just pulling some snippets out of it. We have John talking about a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. What? Emerald rainbows? That doesn't even make sense to me. The one who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Someone sitting on the throne, but they look like gemstones. Okay, not sure what to make of that. And what is going on with these creatures? One is like a lion but it's got wings with eyes all over it, even under the wings. I cannot comprehend exactly what's going on here. And there's a couple points I think we can draw from this. One, I think we should count ourselves grateful that God chose to make us in his image, which seems to be relatively... I mean, it's I trust in the Lord's creation, but he is exhibiting a lot of creativity here, and frankly, I would be a little bit freaked out if my wife was a lion with wings and eyes all over her. Like, that would be a little much to handle. So I'm grateful that God made us in his image. And the second thing is, I think we need to appreciate that what John is trying to do here is he is trying to, amongst other things, I mentioned the need to understand the Old Testament, but I think what John is also doing is he is trying to grasp the impossible and confine it to human language. Look at the words that he uses here. He says that there was a rainbow that shone like an emerald. There was a creature that was like a lion. Now let's be clear, John's not a valley girl. We're not supposed to read this as, it was like a lion. Grody. That's not what's happening here. It's, it's, he is taking this thing that he cannot hope to comprehend. It is so far beyond his understanding. But God tells him in just a second here, you need to write this down. You need to carry this message forward. So he is trying desperately to make sense of something that is so far beyond his ability to comprehend. And I mention this mainly to set up our next passage, which reveals truths about living in God's presence that, as crazy as this might sound, are more stunning than anything we just read, that are even further beyond our ability to comprehend. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And finally, we have one passage I want to share from Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. In case you're not aware, that's not something trees normally do. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This should stun us. This should knock us over. This should inspire in us wonder and awe like nothing we have ever known. More than emerald rainbows, more than figures that look like gemstones, more than lions with wings that are covered in eyes, this should stun us. John tells us that when we are with the Lord forever, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be no more night, which in contemporary iconography, the, the imagery of the time, it signified fear and danger and violence. Night was not a place where you wanted to be caught alone and vulnerable. When we are with the Lord forever, there will be nothing more to fear. And whether we realize it or not, these things, the things that will be absent from existence when God reigns as he should, they define our present lives. They are the core narrative of this world. Our world, the cultures of this world, the powers that be, the various things that define this world that we live in, do everything they can to hide from death, to push mourning into the background, to cover over pain, to do everything we can to hide from these things. We try to distract ourselves from the fact that this world is broken, that sin has marred God's beautiful creation from the very structure of the universe. Our universe should not be experiencing decay, but it is. From the very structure of the universe down to the way we treat each other every single day. Our world is broken and marred by sin. We do everything we can to try to cover over that, to hide that reality. But when God comes, when he comes in his glory, he doesn't cover over these things. He doesn't hide them. He doesn't obscure them. 
He doesn't tuck them around the corner and say, you don't need to think about these things anymore. You don't need to think about death or mourning or crying or pain. He doesn't hide those things. He annihilates them. He wipes them away from existence. As Scripture tells us, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The rules that have governed our world for as long as we have known it don't apply anymore. What will it be like to be with the Lord forever? It will be more glorious than we could ever hope. Everything painful, everything hurtful, everything wrong. This world will be replaced by its beautiful, godly opposite. Greed will become selflessness. Hatred will become love. All the way down the list, because these things that are wrong with the world cannot exist in the present. But I don't think just knowing this is enough. I don't think just being aware on, on some tiny level of what it will be like to be with the Lord forever should be enough for us. I want to go one step further. I want to ask what we should do with these truths. What do we do with these truths? What do we do with this future hope, that pr this promise that when we are with the Lord forever, things will be so much more glorious than they are now? To answer this question, we're going to turn back to 1 Thessalonians. So if you want to flip back to the left and find that in your Bibles. This time we're going to be reading from chapter 5, just immediately following up on what we read before from 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, read that as whether we are alive or dead, we may live together with him. In light of this future hope, Paul calls the Thessalonians, and, and we should heed this as well, to not be like the others who are asleep, but to let us be awake and sober. And further, if we go on to verse 8, Paul, the language that he uses in this verse, he calls us to put on various parts of various truths about our relationship with God. They speak of preparedness. They speak of the need to take action. 
to equip ourselves accordingly to take that action. And from this passage, I draw two things that we should consider in light of our future hope of eternal life with God. The first one of these is that we should not be passive. The promise of eternal life with God is not and should never be an escape hatch for God's people. The promise of eternal life with God is not something we get to use as an excuse. As we watch people hurt each other, as we watch the world hurting around us, as we acknowledge that the world is broken, but we sit back and say, I know where I'm going, so I can watch this all play out. Eternal life with God is not an escapist safety for the Lord's people. Because the promise of eternal life with God does not negate a single word of the rest of Scripture. Just because we have this future hope doesn't mean the rest of Scripture doesn't apply. does not mean that we get a pass. Jesus' call for us, his great commission, that we would go into all the world baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all of Jesus' commands still holds on our lives. We should not grow lazy or complacent waiting for God's return because we remember all of Revelation 21, 6 through 8 read it before, but we'll read it again. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. Yes, God's faithful people will receive our eternal reward. But as we have talked about in this series, judgment still stands for those who remain far from Jesus and his salvation. God has called us to declare freedom to those captives. He has called us to lead people out of the lies of this world and the lies of their sin and the deception of Satan. And we must remain vigilant in that pursuit, in the pursuit of freedom for those captives, in the pursuit of truth for those caught in lies, the pursuit of a beautiful reconciling, healing, saving relationship with Jesus for those who do not know him. We must remain vigilant in light of the promise of God's imminent return. He is coming back. We sang it today. We know it to be true. In light of that, we need to remain vigilant. As we remain vigilant, we can also be encouraged by the promise of eternity. God. We should encourage one another. I'm actually stealing Paul's words here. He says as much. He says, 
in, he says to the Thessalonians, he calls us to encourage each other with these words, speaking of the fact that we will be with the Lord forever. This is meant to be an encouragement that we deliver to one another. So when we are weary of the hardships of this life, when we wonder if our efforts to advance the gospel are ever going to pay off, if our prayers will ever see fulfillment, when we wonder how we are supposed to carry on in a world that is so full of death and pain and hurt, we can still encourage each other. We can declare to each other the truth that God, when he reigns following his glorious return, will make everything right. Not only will we get to live in that, all of those to whom we extend the gospel will live in that truth with us. In light of the fact that we will be with the Lord forever, we remain vigilant in doing God's work, and we encourage each other in the trustworthy promise of the eternal life to come. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team back up. We're going to close with a song in just a little bit here. As we get ready to do that, since we are closing out uh, our, our series on the creed, what I felt was appropriate to do was to take this question we've been asking today. What do we do with these truths that we learned? What do we do with, with these things that we know about what it will be like to be with the Lord forever? What do we do with these truths? I want us to take that and extend it to think that way about this entire series. When I think about this series that we've been through, when I think about going through the Apostles' Creed, in some ways I think we have been unpacking a biography of God. Scripture, as I understand it, is, is the revelation of God's person to us. It is God introducing himself to us. As we move forward as a community, we are going to be diving much deeper into various parts of Scripture, doing pretty deep dives into the entirety of the Bible we are going to be getting to know these various facets of God. And when we narrow down on one aspect of God, I think it becomes really easy for that to define everything about our relationship with him. It makes sense. We think about what's in front of us. But as we reflect today on what we do with these truths about what eternal life with God will be like, I want to ask you that as we move forward as a church, that you would reflect every time we come to a new passage in Scripture, what is everything I've learned in this series, believe series, all these fundamental things I've learned about what it means to follow Jesus? How do I bring that to my understanding of this passage? God wants us to know all of him. And he uses scripture to introduce himself in that way. I am very excited to move forward with you as a community to get to know God that much better. And I hope that what we've covered in this series will help us really get to know God as he would have us know him. I want to ask that you pray with me, please. Lord, I have a hard time pressing on in this world when I know what it will be like to be with you forever. It is hard to imagine such a glorious thing and then turn to the reality of this world and keep God, this is where you have placed me, and this is where you have placed each of us. 
This is where you have placed this community. And you have placed us here, God, to go and to make disciples, to go and be ministers of reconciliation, to carry this hope that we get to have confidence in to the world, to not hold it to ourselves. So God, especially in this season, whereby your Spirit's working, people are more aware who you are, more likely to be asking questions about who you are, about what it means that we can have a relationship with God, let us remember, Lord, to be vigilant. As we look forward to the hope of eternal life with you, let us remember to be vigilant. Remind us to pray. Remind us to seek those out who need to hear of your good word, your saving truth, and your love, Lord.